This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the travel advisory issued by the federal government. Do not travel outside of Canada. If you have Christmas travel plans, cancel them. That is the message from the Canadian government yesterday. It has thousands of people scrambling to understand these rules. What are your options here? We've got some great guests coming up on this. First, though, have a listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking on this yesterday. My message to Canadians, first and foremost, is I understand this sucks. Nobody wants to see Omicron arriving. No one wants to see the level of communicability we're seeing uh, in communities, in provinces right across the country. This is not what anyone wanted for our Christmas holidays. Not much in the last year and a half has been what anybody wanted. Justin Trudeau speaking yesterday saying, yeah, he understands this sucks. Yeah, it sucks for sure. Let's check in with Claire Newell now, global travel expert. She is the CEO of Travel Best Bets, and it's always great to have her here. Claire, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me. Yep, this is uh, an advisory that's back in place that was actually in place for almost 18 months, lifted quietly. Uh, about two months ago, kind of the last week of October, but it is back in place. So the advisory to avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada. Claire, what are you hearing from the people in your office and your colleagues in the travel business? Did people see this coming or did this take the industry by surprise yesterday? Uh, I think people in the industry were very disappointed, um, but I think it's no surprise because of the fact that Omicron is happening. Did I think that there would be other precautions taken first? Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, reducing the size of events that people go to and uh, maybe uh, tightening up some rules because you can travel without any tests to the U.S. if you're going less than 72 hours. But those were not changed. Just the advisory was put in place. We did have people in our office scrambling yesterday, uh, wow. as we've had many times, Mike. Yeah, I bet you, I bet you did. I have no doubt about that. And what does this mean for people like, okay, I've already received emails and calls from people who said, look, I've got a family vacation. We were going to an all inclusive in Mexico, like next week. What should I do? I've had some people say, we're still going. And I've had other people say, well, I, I guess we got to cancel now. Does my cancellation insurance cover it? I mean, what are people's options here? Well, the reality is is that every single uh, trip that is booked is going to be booked differently. So you need to look at the terms and conditions under which you were booked, what, whether that was through a Canadian tour operator, whether that was with an airline directly. Did you do it through a VRBO? So every um, situation is different. Yeah. Our advice yesterday um, as a company was to pull a report of all of the travelers, several hundred people that are scheduled to book to travel over the next four weeks, which is when this advisory is in place for at least. That's what they've said. So for anyone um, who we had on the books, it's very important for us as their travel advisor to tell them about this level three advisory that's now been put in place and to 
give them the information and then it's a personal decision whether they will cancel or not. Um, from I'm not advocating whether people cancel or not. I'm just right. telling you that there were not a lot of people who canceled, but there were people who did have to top up their travel insurance because of that, because we don't want them to go anywhere. Um, the other thing that we have to advise people of is the fact that if they go away, they need to stay vigilant. They're not leaving COVID-19 behind them. They need to wear their mask. They need to socially distance. They need to wash their hands just like they do here. They need to make sure that they pack masks and sanitizer. The last thing that they want to do is contract COVID-19 while they're away. Yeah. Um, it means that you cannot get back on a plane if you have it. So that's just um, one of the main reasons that we have to ensure that people have the right travel insurance before they actually leave. If people are in destination, because a lot of people left early on their vacation because they had children and they didn't want them to have to miss much school. So we had people leaving this week. Those people are covered um, if they bought travel insurance because the level three advisory wasn't put in place. So if you have loved ones who are away, they are covered. Um, if you are leaving you know, today on, you need to make sure that you top up any potential holes in your travel insurance because you may not be covered. And if you contract COVID-19, it could be very expensive to stay the 10, 12, 14 days until you test negative to be able to come home. The other thing you have to be vigilant about is being sure that you are aware of what's happening here. We were already being told that, that things could change. Quarantine measures, testing requirements, that type of thing could change. Um, so Canada may make changes to those rules. So, so if you are going, you need to make sure you follow the rules that may change while you're away. So all this is really important. Okay, I think all that information you just listed is crucial for people to understand and know, Claire. Speaking to Claire Newell, Travel Best Bets. So, for example, like let's say someone is scheduled to leave next week. They'd already bought some travel insurance. But once the government issues one of these advisories, what, that potentially voids uh, some some people's insurance coverage? You better make sure you're covered, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, the vast majority of our our clients actually had COVID protection plan in place, which doesn't need to be changed. However, some people who just chose to do just travel emergency medical only may not have that COVID protection that they need. It would have been fine had this uh, advisory not come into play. But the moment the advisory goes from uh, avoid non-essential or goes up to avoid non-essential travel, that level three, that's where there are some changes to certain insurance policies. Okay. You mentioned like if people get sick while they're out of the country, that's kind of, I guess, worst case scenario for people. Like what can people expect? Like you mentioned, if you're sick, you're test positive while you're outside of Canada. What, you can't come home? You no, gotta... you can't get back on a plane. Yeah. So until you test negative or you've done your isolation period. So that's something that you have to, to really take into consideration. You know, if you have work schedules, uh, family at home that need you, if you're not traveling with your children, nobody wants to be stuck in destination yeah. testing positive for COVID-19. And we know, uh, we don't know a lot about Omicron, but we do know that it spreads very quickly, faster than Del the Delta right. variant. Right. So despite all these concerns that you just listed, you, you mentioned earlier, Claire, that most of your clients who have trips booked, they're still going. Is that right? Yes, but I don't want to appear to be normalizing travel at this yeah, time. Right. Um, but the, the reality from our client standpoint is that many are choosing to go, but right. with the precautions. 
Right, because it's not a travel ban. That's the important thing for people to realize. It's a recommendation. It's an advisory. It's not yes. a ban. So people are still allowed to travel if, if they choose to do so. But you better be aware of what you're getting into and especially get your insurance. Uh, make sure you got full coverage, like you said. What about, like, okay, okay let's say someone decides I'm going to cancel uh, my trip or I want to reschedule it. Is that easy to do or is that a problem? Um, it depends how close they are to departure, Mike. And so that's something that if you are considering it, do it sooner rather than later so that you have more options. Um, insurance policies change depending on how close it is uh, to departures. So too do airlines and, and tour operator bookings. So I would get on that if you are planning to, to change. You know, you can yeah. potentially move your dates, but every single booking is so different. Some may allow you to, some may not. Right. What if you have cancellation insurance? Would that cover this? Uh, depending on the policy. Again, it's yeah. one of those things you need to speak to your, your insurance because every policy is different. Right. Right. What would you say about, I mean, I can't think of a worse possible time for this no. to hit the industry. I mean, this is no, the busiest. Isn't. Yeah, because this is the busiest travel time of the year, is it not? Well, no question. And yeah. because November, we, the, the advisory was lifted at the tail end of October, you can imagine how much pent up demand there was for, through the month of November oh. and into early December while this, so, so many people put tra uh, travel on the books and they did it because they want to visit friends and family. They want to get away over the holidays with their, 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 their kids. And so they chose to put travel on the books. So many people are digging their heels in. Airlines are coming out saying that they are, you know, you've heard the WestJet message. They're not very pleased about this situation. So well, what did WestJet I, say? Uh, well, I, I'll let them, uh, you, you can read the media, uh, but they basically came out saying that the, an, an all out advisory to avoid non-essential travel was, it was not the way to go this, yeah. to go about this, that there were other things that could have ha happened before yeah. doing uh, the the full advisory to avoid non-essential travel. Well, that shows you how difficult this is for the travel industry. Like, last question for you, Claire. Like, how tough would you say this is for the for the industry, the industry you work in, the the, the airlines, everyone else that depends on tourism and travel to be yeah. hit with this right now? Well, it's not just us. It's you know, it, it's the the clients, it's the airlines, yeah. it's uh, the airports. This there's a hodgepodge of all sorts of rules. I wish that there could be a coordination between all of the countries. Um, it's taken a hit just in 2020 alone, um, 4.5 trillion U.S. dollar loss to global GDP because of uh, the, the tourism industries, and 62 wow. million jobs lost in 2020. This is brutal, and but it's health and safety first. And I know that. I think people know that. Nobody uh, wants Omicron. You heard Justin Trudeau talk about this. And the airlines are suffering because of it. Right. As soon as Omicron was announced, no, the week of November 24th, the week after, airlines canceled 151,000 scheduled flights between uh, December 1st and the end of January in that two-month period. That's 3% of the world's flights. Claire, I know this is a busy time for you. Hang in there. Thanks a lot for coming on today with your thoughts. Appreciate it. Thank, thanks so much, Mike. Take oh. care. So today, I have the task of confirming that our government is officially advising Canadians to avoid non-essential non travel outside Canada. All right, that's Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos yesterday making it official. That government travel advisory coming down. Do not travel outside of the country. If you have holiday travel plans, 
cancel them. That is the word and the advisory yesterday from the government of Canada. This has taken the travel industry, thrown them for a loop. Let's check in with Bruce Boone Tip now. He is the founder of G Adventures. It's an award-winning global adventure travel company. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Bruce, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, Bruce, the last time I talked to you on this show was, as I recall, about a year ago, and we talked about travel, the travel business and during COVID, how your business had been pretty much shut down as a result. Now you, we got into a period here where the travel advisory was lifted by the government in October and the industry is getting back on its feet. Mm-hmm. Then, then this thing comes down. What, what has this been like for you trying to run your business? Oh, it's a disaster. I mean, every, every part of it, uh, you know, it's global, but Canada is, seems always stricter than even global measures. Um, but we, you know, the last two years has been all a fluid situation and we have to adapt to you know, governments all over the world in, in order to keep going. Yeah, I mean, did this one blindside you guys or did you see this coming or did you think it would go this far? Uh, it's, it's more the, the news cycles and the fear-mongering around it because, I mean, the, the, I mean, this was just lifted eight weeks ago. There was a non-essential ban eight weeks ago. This is just right. being reinstated. So we've, we've had eight weeks of normality, I guess. Um, but yeah, it blindsided us for sure. I mean, I think it's, it's toothless. I mean, what, what a recommendation, uh, you know, a non-essential travel, it's not really a ban as, as you've right. mentioned on your show. So it's, it's just dealing with people, you know, it, it just causes a lot of fear and amongst people and everyone has to decide for themselves what they want to do because it's not a ban. What, what are you telling your clients? I'm sure you've got a lot of trips that you've booked. Oh, uh, we have, yeah, we have to tell everyone what the implications are. There's many countries that have now inbound test requirements and, and different things, and every country is different. And we just lay out all the information that we have in front of us, and we encourage them to make their own decisions. And hopefully we can get, and we're still running trips where we can. We've had to cancel many. Uh, we've canceled a lot of trips between now and Christmas, unfortunately. But, you know, we have to just roll with all the information that we have and present it to our customers and let them make their own decisions. Right. So you're not advising your customers to cancel or encouraging them to keep traveling. You're just laying out the information for them and say, look, you've got to decide for yourself. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we, that's all we can do. I mean, we're not advising them not to travel for sure, for sure not. I mean, I mean, I'm traveling tomorrow. So I'm, uh, so I can't. Where, where are you going? I'm going down south for, this, for Christmas. I'm continuing my Christmas plans. Okay, so you're not so so you're not going to follow the government advisory. You're going on your trip anyway. Yes, yeah. the government. Well, the government. It's it's a recommendation. Yeah. Um, and so, and again, as I said, if I would have done that, the 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 last advisory was only lifted eight weeks ago. So if I'd have listened to, I had eight weeks, and I and I had to travel. I you know traveled when it was on last year. We've all had to adapt to what's going on, and that's the hope that the government would have would have learned something over the last two years on how to you know deal with the situation but it seems like we haven't learned anything eight weeks ago this was lifted and now it's it's back again yeah speaking to bruce boone tip he's the founder of g adventures it's a global adventure travel company so bruce we just got a minute left here like i see WestJet is is out today just slamming this decision they say it's not mm-hmm. based on science they're they're very upset like what do you think yeah. what do you think about the government's done here do you agree with that assessment yeah, yeah, I, I agree with exactly what they say. The, the headline being, show me the science. It doesn't, the, the, the reaction does not match the science. And I fully believe that. I mean, and the other part of it is what I, what, you know, 
that what have we learned in the last two years of dealing with this if we're going backwards? Um, and we've all known for the last two years, we're, ex- we're expecting variants, and this isn't the last variant, but we're still overreacting, and it's not going to stop. Like, it's already, it was too, it's too late because it's already here, and it's going to, we have to learn to adapt. This pandemic eventually has to move to an endemic, and we all understand that this isn't going to go away. So we have to learn to live with, with it and take precautions and be safe and do whatever we can. Um, th- this is also proving to be less dangerous, which is a great thing. Um, but th- it's not going to be the last variant that if we continue okay. to have these knee- knee-jerk reactions, we'll never get out of this. Bruce, thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the uh, Doug McCallum saga, the latest twists and turns. The Surrey mayor now facing a charge of public mischief. This goes back to September when he had a confrontation with a constituent in the parking lot of a Save-On food store. And the mayor said there was a confrontation about a petition drive that was going on in the parking lot, uh, trying to get a referendum on Surrey policing. The mayor is not happy about it. Words were exchanged, and then he said the driver of a Ford Mustang hit him with her car. Okay, here's what he said. Let's go back to September. Let's remember what McCallum said here. Here's what he said at the time. As she she pulled out and, and turned right, she clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off. McCallum told us he did his grocery shopping, went to the hospital, then spoke to the RCMP. They asked me if I wanted to lay charges, and I said yes. Okay, heard Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart there as well, and the mayor saying that he wanted charges laid, and charges were laid, but their charges are laid against him. All right, so here we go now. What happens next? Well, the mayor has hired a lawyer, and he's not hired some fly-by-night lawyer from a strip mall office. Is no better call Saul here for the mayor. You got Richard Peck defending him, one of the most high-profile criminal defense lawyers in B.C. This guy does not work for chump change. Who is paying the mayor's legal bills? Well, you are if you live in the city of Surrey. Surrey taxpayers will pay the bill for the mayor's legal defense. Some people not happy about it. Let's check in with Dave Langlands now. He's got a petition going on this. Hey, Dave. Good morning, Mike. Dave, thanks a lot for coming on. Tell me about your petition. What are you trying to achieve here? Well, first, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the support. Um, Well, basically, being a longtime resident of Surrey, I've been here for over 30 years, um, gotten to the point where civic politics has become laughable for many people. And then to hear that the mayor is going to ask us to pay for his legal fees for an incident that happened when he was on personal time, off shopping for groceries uh, doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. It's not fair to the citizens to ask us to pay for probably one of the highest paid lawyers in the country yeah. to defend them on a criminal charge. Right. So what is the uh, what is the purpose of your petition? The purpose of the petition is very simply to ask the city of Surrey to not pay for the legal fees. There's no right. reason for us to pay for those fees as, a, as taxpayers. If he needs uh, criminal defense, he can pay for it himself. How many signatures have you collected so far? Well, as about 10 minutes ago, we're at over 5,300 signatures so far. Wow, wow. okay, that's a, that's a lot in, in a short period of time. Uh, you know, you're, I, I take your point that you're saying that taxpayers should not be on the hook for the guy's lawyer if, he, if this happened on his own personal time. 
Now, I'm sure what McCallum would say is that this was actually the public's time because he was advocating for police reform in the city of Surrey. He was concerned that the petition drive that was going on in the parking lot, you know, his original concern was that they weren't allowed to be there, that they, they said the petition, the people who were collecting the signatures in the petition said, no, actually, we are allowed to be here. We have permission to do this. You know, he made a campaign commitment to bring in a local police force, and that's what he says he was standing up for. So I'm sure he would argue that that, that was part of his public duties. Right, not his private duties. Yeah, he's got all sorts of excuses for that, and <laughs> uh, anybody with any common sense knows that that's not the case. The folks there doing the petition drive were there uh, legally; they had a right from BC Elections to be collecting signatures for the petition. Yeah, um, he's not a bylaw enforcement officer. There's no reason for him to confront them in any way. He could have simply walked by, continued on, and done his grocery shopping. Made a phone call to his city bylaws manager and said, "Can you go and deal with that?" That's the way it should have been dealt as a manager, if that's what he was thinking of. There was no reason to confront anybody. Right. Okay. So do you think that, what are people saying to you, like when you are, you're collecting signatures on your own petition now to try and force the city not to pay these legal bills, what are people saying to you about this? What are their concerns? Everybody is on side. I've had enormous support. Uh, many, many messages on social media, phone calls. Um, amazing how many people can find you when they want to. Um, yeah. And I've had a couple detractors that are saying this isn't even worth the time. Why are you, why are you worrying about it? You know, public mischief is not a big deal. Well, it is. The man is in a position of, of authority. He's uh, chair of the police board. is expected to be held to a higher standard than others. And this is a serious offense when it comes to, down to that. And he's going to have to answer to it. Um, as a, position, a man in his position, he shouldn't be doing things that he's doing, which includes confronting people that are trying to collect a, a bunch of signatures. So, you know, yeah. that's, it's not worth his time to do that. He got involved, and now we see what the outcome is. Do you think I don't he should pay for his legal fees. Yeah, do you, do you think he should resign? I mean, you got Surrey City Hall is in an uproar over this. The mayor's opponents on council are calling for him to resign. They're saying he should step aside as mayor at the very least until the criminal charge is resolved. Others are pointing out that he is the chair of the police board in Surrey. And does that p place him in a conflict of interest to be facing a criminal charge at the same time that he's the chair of the police board? Do you think he should step down from any of these positions as mayor or as chair of the police board? Well, first of all, with, re with respect to the resignation, I don't think he has to be uh, taken that far. It, re regardless of who the person is, the city is in turmoil. We know that right now. But regardless of who the person is from the position, um, the right thing to do is step aside as chair of the police board because this is a police matter and he shouldn't be involved in any policing matters at this point in time and probably wouldn't hurt to step aside as mayor Again, because he's in a position you know, where he's under a criminal charge, he shouldn't be discharging duties in a position of authority while he's got these hanging over his head. Right, okay. Where are you going to submit your petition? Are you going to take that to City Hall? I know the city has an ethics commissioner. Will the petition go there, or do you just present it to council? Where does it go next? Um, well, the petitions are a difficult thing. Anybody that'll listen, I'm hoping the city will listen to it. But it'll, once they, you know, I'll give it some time, and once we get some signatures, I'd love to see this hit, you know, twenty or thirty thousand signatures. I've had a day and a half, and I'm already at five thousand. So if we can get it up to twenty or thirty, or let's, you know, let's hope maybe even a hundred thousand people take take note after some of the media uh, has been paying attention, 
and get this to city council, definitely the ethics uh, commissioner, and to the provincial government as well. Mike Farnworth needs to, needs to step up and do something about what's going on in Surrey. Where, where can people find the petition online if they're interested in looking at it? It's at change.org. Uh, they've got quite a, a large um, URL for it, but um, if you go to change.org and search for um, McCallum or Surrey, you should uh, be able to find that. Um, it's not a simple okay. thing to do, but people are doing it. Look on, look on uh, social media. It's all over Twitter as well. Dave, thanks for coming on. We're following it closely. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate the time. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the environmental impact of beef production and eating meat now. And I'll disclose for you right up front i am a i'm a meat eater i enjoy barbecuing i love cooking a sunday roast for my family i will happily chow down on a burger and fries beef and meat production though feeling the heat from the environmental movement especially in the era of climate change some groups saying stop the expansion of cattle production stop eating meat Okay, now here's a typical example. This is a TV commercial here from PETA. That's a People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And their campaign, Meat is Not Green. Have a listen here. How about that steak on your plate? The United Nations has concluded that factory farming is one of the biggest contributors to the most serious environmental problems at every level, from local to global. Land degradation, climate change, pollution, water shortages, Habitat destruction? These are not inevitable forces. The change is easy. All we have to do is tell everyone we know that meat's not green. All right, let's discuss now with my guest. What a great guest we have for you today, Nicolette Hahn Nyman. Nicolette is a cattle rancher. She is the author of the book, Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Nicolette. Hello, thank you. And I just want to add right away that my background is also as a lifelong environmentalist. Yes, indeed. And I want to ask you about that because I'm fascinated by your story here. And I know you're a lawyer, you're an environmental lawyer. And I know for a long time you were you were like a critic or a watchdog of, of the meat industry, right, before you got into cattle ranching. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I was hired as, I had worked as an environmental lawyer for National Wildlife Federation, and then I was hired by a group called Waterkeeper Alliance, which is based in New York, and headed by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he wanted me to focus my time on pollution from the livestock industry, which I did for two years. But it's interesting because right away, as I started that job, and I, and I was visiting uh, various types of livestock operations around the country, I immediately could see there was a really dramatic difference, ecologically speaking, depending on how you were doing things. So I was already kind of convinced from the beginning that we needed to make a pretty big distinction about what we were criticizing. Right. And as you, as you got deeper into this, I, I understand that um, now you married a cattle rancher, right? 
That's correct. Bill Nyman, <laughs> he's also the founder of a, a well-known meat company, Nyman Ranch. And, you know, I'd been a vegetarian for 20 plus years already when I met him. So it was not exactly the person I thought I would marry. But then, you know, <laughs> love conquers all. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I love it. So you ended up now. Now you run the cattle ranch with your husband now, right? That's correct. I've been yeah. involved. I've, I've lived here for the past 18 years. I was living in New York when I met my husband, Bill, but I moved to California where his ranch was and I've been here for 18 years. And I, yes, I work out on the ranch and until our two boys were born, I was doing it pretty much full time. But now, you know, mostly mothering these days and then helping out on the ranch here okay. and there. <laughs> that, that's a very that's a very fascinating timeline there to go through. Are you still a vegetarian? Well, two years ago, I decided to start eating meat again because I had reached the age of 50 and I started to try to really evaluate my health. And wow. I had my bone density tested and found that my bone density was getting already losing, I was losing bone density. And I could also see that I was gaining weight and losing muscle mass. And all of those things are things that meat is really helpful to reverse. So I decided to reintegrate meat into my diet. And I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed eating it. So I've been eating it ever since. Okay, that's really interesting. And I, I recall, Nicolette, I think I read an article describing your, you know, after you'd been a longtime vegetarian, and the first time you started going back to, to eating meat again. And I think, it, was there like a, you, you took a bite of a hamburger or something? Like the, the, the first time you tried meat again after all those years, what was that like? Yeah, it was literally uh, um, um, beef from our own ranch that my husband, Bill, prepared on our grill in our backyard. Yeah. And I kind of thought, geez, am I going to regret eating this? And I took <laughs> a bite and it was just this feeling of relief and enjoyment and, you know, just <laughs> deliciousness. And so, no, I had no regret and I immediately realized, yep, this is what I should be doing. Okay. Speaking to Nicolette Hahn Nyman, she's the author of the book Defending Beef. So did your health improve after you you uh, began eating meat again? Yes, I immediately noticed a couple of things. One is as a vegetarian for over 30 years, I was always hungry. And that's something I've heard a lot of vegetarians describe as well. And I had that sensation myself. And immediately within, you know, literally from that first meal, I began to feel a lot more satiated and the, the feeling of constant hunger kind of disappeared. And the other really interesting immediate impact was that um, my craving for sweets really declined as well, almost oh. disappeared. And that's that's been a long time struggle for me is to try to cut back my sugar and, you know, to not be eating, you know, a sweet after every meal and to, you know, get away from sweetened beverages and all that. So I've been working on that for years. But when I started eating meat, it immediately made that whole effort much easier. And and I've um, noticed a big change in that way. Okay, that's really fascinating uh, what, you've, what you've been through here. And let's talk about the, the environmental impact of beef production and also the nutritional aspect of eating meat, which is a focus of a lot of your work right now. And and right now, yes. we heard that we heard that uh, uh, commercial we just played there from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, kind of making the case against eat, eating meat. Do not eat meat. Let's scale back beef production. This is bad for the planet. I mean, you've heard all these arguments. How do you how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I I haven't heard that ad until you just played it, yeah. but it's a perfect example of something I describe in my book, Defending Beef. 
Because what I talk about in there is there's actually a really well-documented history of animal rights activists for years trying to get people to stop eating meat and not having very much success. You know, this was the sort of meat is murder message that was out there for decades. And there was very little progress in the uh, in the animal rights community as far as how many people they were converting to vegetarianism and veganism. And about 20 years ago, there was a a conscious decision made by animal rights organizations to begin focusing on climate change as the message instead of meat is murder. And so that uh, ad you just showed is a perfect example of it. It's kind of using the pretext of climate change to get people to stop eating meat because they believe it's ethically wrong to eat meat. Now, you could say, well, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But the truth of the matter is, first of all, it's a little bit dishonest because they're really trying to, you know, it's a kind of a bait and switch kind of deal. But the other problem with it is that the more I've learned, I've been focusing on the environmental implications of meat production for over 20 years. And the most important thing I've learned is it is not the cow, it's the how. It's all about how we do things. And so if you listen to the PETA ad, they're sort of telling you, well, there's no choice. You know, the only thing we can do is stop eating meat. That's not true. There's a lot that can and should be done to improve how meat is produced and make it more ecologically sound. But we don't need to stop eating meat. All right. Welcome back to the show. Continuing my discussion now with Nicolette Hahn Nyman, author of Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Uh, Nicolette is a longtime environmental lawyer. She's a cattle rancher. And uh, we talked. We were talking before the break, Nicolette, about the the impact of beef production. And you were saying, I loved your line there. It's not about the cow. It's about it's not about the cow. It's about the how. All right. Could you yes. expand? Could you expand on that? Well, that is exact. I mean, that's just the critical point here. When you say, well, beef, you know, production or any kind of meat production causes this negative, um, in, you know ramification ecologically you're suggesting that that's inherent right that it must do that well it doesn't have to there are lots of different ways to do things and what a lot of my work has focused on for the last 20 years doing a lot of research reading you know reading studies from around the world but also visiting lots of ranches around the world i've seen that when cattle are well raised you know when there's a lot of focus on how the grazing is done and, you know, the numbers of animals and where they are and, um, you know, when they're moved and how often they're moved and how much is, you know, how much impact is put on each segment of land, et cetera, all those questions. Then you actually see a tremendous ecological benefit from grazing. So that tells you that it's not about cattle inherently or cows. It's about how, how we do things. And the most fascinating part of what I learned over these last 20 years is is it's not even about mitigating the damage. You know, we're not just trying to reduce the harm of meat production. When you look at really good regenerative agricultural practices, and they always involve animals, by the way, you really need animals in truly regenerative agriculture, you actually see a positive impact on the environment. So that's why I say it is not the cow, it's the how. Okay, so if you take a look at beef production around North America right now, and I guess the, the most critical focus that people point to are the, the large industrial kind of factory farming processes like huge feedlots, right, and that kind of thing. Is that damaging or can that be reformed? Well, yeah, I would agree. You know, from my analysis, that's the part that is the most concerning because first of all when you whenever you have large numbers of animals concentrated in one place 
there's potential for water pollution, air pollution, and you can't give as much individual attention to every animal to sort of make sure that their health is good and their welfare is good. So I do think having more distribution and sort of, you know, um, dissemination of animals like we did historically is a better thing for the environment. And I also think that having cattle, especially that are grazing animals and are able to convert naturally occurring vegetation, sort of miraculously take this inedible cellulosic plant matter and turn it into meat and milk. And so animals that are grazing animals like cattle really should be out on grass as much as possible, both from an environmental and an animal welfare standpoint. Also, it makes much more nutritious food. So I think we need to try to move back towards more grass-based production, and we need to work on improving grazing practices because grazing can be done really well or it can be done poorly. And there is, actually, this is kind of the good news part of the story, there is a lot of interest and attention in this within the agricultural community. There are more and more people focusing on how they're doing the grazing, and we're seeing tremendous improvement in the ecological impact of animal grazing around the world because of these improved practices. Yeah, I mean, you sure, you even see some fast food chains now uh, advertising, look, we're serving grass-fed beef, you know, and, and making it a consumer choice, and people are looking to make those choices. So that, that is interesting for sure. What about the, um, you, you touched on the nu- nutritional aspect of, of eating meat, and you described your own journey from going from a long-time vegetarian back to eating meat again. You know, we often hear the argument that beef is, is not healthy. You know, we heard that in that PETA ad there, for example, that it's just, it's bad for your health. You should eat less meat. Actually, don't even eat meat at all. That would be the best thing. You hear this a lot, right? <laughs> what, what about yeah. what about that? Like, what about the nutritional aspect of it? Well, I in first of all, I have to say, as a vegetarian for a long time, you know, I, I once sort of believed that myself. And I spent a lot of years reading a lot of articles about this. But when I started... Uh, really looking at meat and its environmental impacts and its health uh, impacts over the last couple of decades. That's when I was really surprised to learn how nutritionally valuable meat is and how much human health suffers in places where they don't have nearly enough meat or other animal-based foods like, you know, milk and eggs. And, And there's actually tremendous research around this from around the world. And there's also, um, there's a increasing, uh, there's just the last decade, there was a lot of reanalysis of the studies that seem to show, you know, sort of negative health implications from red meat. And what the, you know, the consensus that, I, that I'm hearing from credible scientists more and more is that that was not valid science. There was a lot of kind of sloppy science that sort of indicted red meat. And what really deserves more evaluation and what the studies are seeming to show now is that processed foods are the problem. And when you look at processed meat, there may be some health problems from that. And there's um, definitely health implications from all processed foods. So I would say there's a category of meat that we should be cautious about eating, but the meat itself is not only not you know health harmful to the human body it's actually really valuable as food so so that's why my focus is all about let's make meat and other animal based foods more ecologically sound and make sure we're not you know using unnecessary you know chemicals and pharmaceuticals when we produce it because we don't want the residues of that stuff in our foods and we don't want you know and let's say antibiotic resistant bacteria on our foods either 
And so we need to move away from those kinds of things that are being done in meat production. But that doesn't mean you get rid of the meat. That's like I always say that's like throwing the calf out with the bathwater. You know, you don't <laughs> want to get rid of the really good, valuable thing, which is animal-based foods and especially meat. But you should um, work on improving it. And I think that applies pretty much across the board to the whole meat industry. Okay, well, it's been fascinating to talk to you today. I think it's a really interesting journey that you've been on uh, as an environmental lawyer and a former vegetarian and now a cattle rancher. I recommend your book, and uh, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me.